You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 27th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. It has been very much so another week in Brexit. Also, we'll look at Canada and Hong Kong, where two very different leaders are trying two very different tacks to deal with two very different crises. We will fanfare tomorrow's Australian Football League Grand Final with a look at the weird and, dare we say, wonderful world of AFL club songs. Where the greats of Western Sydney Giants Where the biggest and the best And we're talking about Milton Keynes, it says here, for some reason. All that and more coming up on Monocle's House View, starting now. And welcome to today's edition of Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. And we will start here in the United Kingdom, though it has been one of those weeks where it's hard to know where to start with the United Kingdom. On Tuesday, which already feels like it happened sometime during the reign of Edward VII, the UK's Supreme Court decided unanimously that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, had acted unlawfully in advising the Queen to suspend Parliament. Parliament has since resumed and has not been in a forgiving mood, refusing using the just-about-governing Conservative Party, even the traditional recess, to enable the Tories' annual conference. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's executive producer, Tom Edwards. Tom, what's been the highlight for you this week? Well, this is it, Andrew. It's been a selection of lowlights, even by the standards of the rhetoric that we've seen really since the Brexit uh, vote and the subsequent sort of political impasse, inertia, to call it what you will. It feels like this week's really reached a new low ebb, if only in terms of the way that people in, particularly the chamber itself, in Parliament, in the House of Commons, are talking to one another. And I think... Because we we should note, especially for international listeners, there has always been usually observe tradition of decorum uh, in the Houses of Parliament. Well, it, it, it is all my honourable friend and and so on and so forth. Yes. In, which is not to say that things don't get a little unruly from time to time. This is but. the point. It, it, there are these very established uh, niceties and I guess most of our very educated listeners will know that most of the function of the House and indeed most of our function of our politics is governed by convention rather than by any sort of uh, formal constitutional doctrine. I think that point is very important, Andrew, that you just said about it has its moments in the past. And even in recent memory, one can think of perhaps Tony Blair and the atmosphere in the House toxic around, say, the Iraq war. Indeed. Well, I don't know if that, that was so much toxic as genuinely impassioned. I, well, the margin between you, those you two being tomato, rather blurred. Cetera, yeah. I, I think in any <laughs> example you can cite, look, you know, the Thatcher administration for a, a, over a decade had a number of these outbursts they tended to be followed by a lull. There was often a spark, a row about an issue, about a date, a moment. And then the vitriol always, or almost always, was met then with a period of calm, with reflection, and then a gradual rebuilding of some form of consensus. The problem we've had over the last couple of years, and indeed we're seeing it day after day after day, well, day after day after day since Parliament <laughs> reconvened this time, um, is there's no relief to it. 
And I think that if you look at the newspapers here in the UK, it's reflecting this sense of frustration. And depending where on the spectrum you gather your news from, uh, you either see the Telegraph, for example, calls, you know, MPs must not be bullied into curtailing their language. This is the Telegraph, the very pro-Brexit former employer of the present Prime Minister. Or if you even look at you know, The Times, another newspaper of record, divisive language harms chance for deal, uh, Tories warn Johnson. And we've had to look, as so often over the last couple of years, to other voices, new voices, unexpected voices perhaps, to bring a little clarity. And I know, Andrew, we talked about this a moment ago. Um, the 20-year-old daughter of former Labour Party stalwarts, Yvette Cooper and Ed Balls, um, went public talking about her fears for her parents' safety. And this, of course, is through the prism of what happened to, to Joe Cox. And again, just for our international listeners, Boris Johnson cited Joe Cox, who was murdered by a neo-fascist. Member of Parliament for Batley and Spen, if memory serves. And an outspoken campaigner against Brexit. And Johnson said, the way to honour the memory of Joe Cox is to get Brexit done. And I think that and it seems the, the verdict of most right-minded people, that's very insulting to her and her family to, to go against something I mean, that she it, it, was, it was a weird moment for Johnson. Um, and the only two possible explanations are that he knew exactly what he was saying or that he didn't know exactly what he was saying, which I realise is a possibly unhelpful summation. But <laughs> but, but do, do you know what I mean? Because, because it is such a weird thing to have said. Well, it's been extraordinary to see the reaction to those pronouncements from Johnson. Now, obviously, he's been travelling back from New York where he left the UNGA at short order. One imagines he's not exactly well-rested at the moment. Uh, but even commentators like his sister, you know, they've been saying this is this is meat and drink for him. This is what he likes. He likes to be the PM. He wants to try and play strongman tactics. You've got people like his advisor, Dominic Cummings, who people are suggesting is driving this rhetoric for the advancement of their political programme. On the other hand, lots of people saying... Listen, everybody needs to show uh, some restraint, some respect. And actually, if we want to make any kind of progress here, and actually it doesn't matter where you are on the Brexit uh, you know, on the Brexit spectrum, if you want to see momentum, we need to start having more constructive discussions. Depressingly, there is almost certainly plenty more where all of that came from next week. Tom Edwards, thank you for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And to Canada now, where it has been a memorable couple of weeks for anyone who bet heavily earlier in the year on Justin Trudeau's fancy dress preferences becoming a major election issue. Canada votes on October 21st, and the upshot of this will be whether or not Justin Trudeau is returned as Prime Minister. Trudeau has apologised, and obviously quite rightly, for his bizarre serial misadventures in blackface. But how forgiving is the electorate proving to be? Well, I'm joined with more on this from Toronto by our bureau chief there, Thomas Lewis. Um, Thomas, we will have by now seen some post-scandal polling. Does it look like it has put a dent in him? Well, the needle hasn't really moved at all, Andrew. A poll was made at the end of last week, directly at the height of this uh, scandal, as you say, as the the three photos and one video are published by various news outlets. And yes, that the opinion polls really hadn't budged one bit, and they seem to have remained pretty much the same this week, which I think to many people watching this story, you know, from the outside, will be pretty sort of amazed by. I think that what that speaks to is two things. I think 
think the way that Justin Trudeau handled uh, the the release of these images uh, was very swift and very sort of categorical, if you like, in its in his apologies, which really sort of cut the story down and really cut the energy, I think, from the opposition party's attempts to to really use this uh, ring every drop from the scandal. Um, I think the second thing is is that his opponents actually have also failed in on their own to really capture the imagination of large swathes of the electorate too. So I think if we had, for example, a more charismatic leader at the head of the Conservatives or at the party on the left, the NDP, uh, perhaps they would have, you know, really risen to the top in this scandal, but they haven't. So I think we are surprisingly so kind of kind of at the where we were before the, the images broke last week. If this isn't landing as an issue then, and obviously Justin Trudeau will be profoundly relieved if it isn't, what is still then seeming to preoccupy Canadian voters as they make their minds up? Well, I think if you look at the campaign itself, it has kind of returned to the pretty sort of normal tone of a general election campaign. We are having daily announcements of policy proposals by all of the major parties. Trudeau made a big announcement, <coughs> excuse me, on the environment this week. Um, the leader of the opposition, the Conservatives, has also made lots of flagship proposals. Um, and I think, you know, it feels kind of quite normal in terms of the tone. I think what, you know, lots of Canadians have felt is that there is maybe a growing sort of slightly shapeless sense of distrust or mistrust towards Justin Trudeau and his government for several things that they haven't done during their first term in office, most notably uh, reforming the voting system here, which is a big, uh, big issue for many voters. Um, Also the environmental credentials. So this very controversial pipeline project in Western Canada has really turned lots of voters away from the Liberal Party. Um, The other parties haven't really had the sort of million dollar kind of answer to sort of sway lots of voters so far, though, it seems. Um, So we will, I expect that we will get more policy um, announcements on pensions, for example, on uh, trying to lure young voters into the fold over the next week or so as election day gets closer. Well, on the subject of the environment, then, there is some chat from the Green Party that they think they could be in a position to hold the balance of power after the election. They are, of course, presupposing a hung parliament. Is this just pre-election braggadocio or, or does it appear actually possible? Well, there is definitely a, quite a big dose of, of of that, I think, from the Green Party. And, you know, who can blame them, frankly? They've had some really impressive opinion poll standings over the last couple of months, particularly and in a provincial election earlier this year. Uh, they almost took power, which would have meant the first Green government in any part of Canada in Canada's history. Um, I think, you know, if you're looking at the way Canadian elections work, usually, you know, people anticipate surprises, but quite often things slip back to how they were. That isn't, I should say, what happened back four years ago when Justin Trudeau won, uh, when his opinion poll ratings were pretty low, and then he came in and swept up a full majority in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Um, So who knows? I think, you know, it's very worthwhile, you know, politically for the Green Party to be um, staking their claim in that way. I think it's worth noting, too, that both the NDP, the party on the left here, 
and the Green Party have said that if the Conservative Party won a minority government or won, won the popular vote, then uh, and they didn't have a green agenda within their mandate, they would then join forces effectively and push for another election. So they are trying to raise the stakes. You know, if Election Day does yield a bit of a mess, I suppose, electorally in terms of the makeup of the House of Commons. Um, and I think, you know, any political party, small or large, would be trying to do the same thing. So I think it's all quite sort of, you know, we're not quite sure how the message will roll on, I think. But if you look back to the events of a week ago, it's remarkable how quickly they have from a scandal that looked like it was about to torpedo the Prime Minister. Thomas Lewis, our Toronto Bureau Chief, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. You are listening to Monocle's House View. In Hong Kong, the city government's chief executive, Carrie Lam, has taken the bold step, all things considered, of interacting directly with the citizens. As Hong Kong braces for yet another weekend of protests, last night Lam held a town hall meeting at which she fielded questions from 150 people selected by lottery. 20,000 people applied. Uh, For more on this, I'm joined in the studio by Monocle researcher Karina Choi, who is usually based in our Hong Kong bureau is here in London at the moment. Um, it's, it's hard to know whether appearing before the public like that, Karina, was a, a bold move or basically about the only play she had left. How did it go? I mean, based on what we saw, she was kind of asking for all this confrontation. Um, it didn't play out so great for her. 70 people were selected to speak out of the 150, and most of them vented their frustration toward her administration and her incompetence as a leader, some even asking her to step down. People were asking questions like, why listen to 150 randomly selected citizens when you won't listen to over 2 million people who've taken to the streets? It's a fair question put like that. Yes, definitely. And and some have even, you know, uh, picked on specific incidents like the Yun Long attacks when triads appeared at the subway stations and police didn't come in time to help people out. People said, how do you respond to those who've been brutally attacked and beaten up by the police? What's she like at, because it varies enormously from politician to politician, is she good at dealing with people and at interacting with the public? Some, some politicians have a terrific aptitude for it, some are just terrible. Where does, where does she figure on that spectrum? Well, purely based on the past four months, we've seen that, you know, at press conferences, at, at this dialogue specifically, it just seemed like she had a list of responses, a list of talking points. And regardless of what was thrown at her, she would just say the same thing. She had no empathy at all for the people. She didn't suggest, made an, make any suggestion that she would come to any sort of compromise. So, I mean, it's telling of how just truly incompetent she has, is as a leader. So if this meeting did not impress the people selected by Lottery to be there all that much, and it seems very much like it didn't, did it have a wider resonance? Did it attract a, a sympathetic response outside the venue? 
Well, directly outside the venue, there were <laughs> there were protesters surrounding the area, and obviously before this all happened, she said, you know, this is a peaceful dialogue. I hope that we can come together and we can be united. But she, st- there were riot police stationed outside with tear gas and rubber bullets at the ready. So, for her to to have that stationed there, it, it's just not welcoming for anyone, and no one's going to feel safe. No one's going to feel like they can trust her. Um, And unfortunately, it took her four hours to get out of the venue because protesters were just so angry at the way that she handled last night. Well, it is as we go to air either very late on Friday night or very early on Saturday morning in Hong Kong, depending on, on how you calibrate these things. What are you expecting this weekend in terms of protest? So it's going to be the fifth anniversary of the Umbrella Movement on Saturday, Mm -hmm. tomorrow. So, um, and also, as as we mentioned previously, um, October 1st on Tuesday, um, which is the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, and two organized protests have been given the green light, so people are allowed to take to the streets. There shouldn't be violence. We hope that there won't be violence. And speaking to some of the protesters and organizers, they say that these upcoming marches are an opportunity for people to mourn more than anything the lives of those who have been sacrificed over the past 70 years or those who, um, you know, those suicides that have occurred over the past four months as well. So overall, we, we shouldn't expect a lot of violence, particularly if the police have given the protesters the green light to go forward. Karina Choi, thank you for joining us in just a moment. We're the greater Western Sydney Giants We're the biggest and the best This is Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. And at this point on the House View, a shout out to listeners in Melbourne and indeed Sydney who may find themselves unable to sleep for anticipation of tomorrow's Australian Football League Grand Final. The Australian state of Victoria is certainly unusual, probably unique, in observing two public holidays for sporting events. One, the first Tuesday of November, is Melbourne Cup Day. In fairness, the rest of the country pretty much takes the afternoon off for the race as well. The other, the last Friday in September, is Grand Final Eve, the day before the climactic match of the Australian Football League season, for which more than 100,000 people will fill the Melbourne cricket ground to watch the Premiership decided. The football they're watching is, of course, Australian rules football, Australia's peculiar passion, the code correctly described by one Australian Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies, as the greatest winter game devised by mortal man. The clubs contesting the grand final this year are Richmond, from the inner suburbs of Melbourne, founded in 1885, and Greater Western Sydney, from the outer suburbs of Sydney, who only joined the AFL in 2012, a creation of the league at spectacular expense and with generous assistance to further the cause of Australian rules in territory traditionally dominated by rugby league. So there are many subtexts to Saturday, but one of the weirder is that this clash between the Tigers and the Giants is also a contest of the two best AFL club songs. Here's Richmond's. And here is Greater Western Sydney's. There's a big, big sound from the west of the town. 
The club songs are a curious quirk of the AFL. All 18 clubs have one, and they are brayed and bellowed by fans in the stands and players in the dressing rooms in the event of victory. The league's older establishment teams have mostly borrowed theirs from familiar tunes. Geelong's is the Toreador song from Bizet's Carmen. We are Geelong, the greatest team of all. We are Geelong. Collingwood's started life as the music hall standard Goodbye Dolly Gray. Carlton's stately anthem is the minstrel tune, Lily of Laguna. And the Saints of St Kilda serenade their historically infrequent wins with an obvious choice. The canonical versions were recorded in the early 1970s by a choir of Melbourne jazz players wrangled by a record company called Fable. The expansion of what was once the Victorian Football League to become the Australian Football League during the 1980s and 1990s saw new teams added to the competition and therefore the necessity of new songs. In several regrettable instances, original works were commissioned. These all absolutely sucked and indeed sucked still, none worse than the none more 80s abomination which fanfares the West Coast Eagles onto the field. Greater Western Sydney's splendid, swaggering stomp... is the work of Harry Angus of Melbourne rock band The Cat Empire. Though no great football fan, Angus understood what was marvellous about the original club songs and alchemised that blend of macho braggadocio and arch high camp into something that sounds like it might have welcomed Soviet tank divisions back from the Battle of Kursk. Greater Western Sydney are a new club with few fans and little history. Richmond are an old club, one of the best supported in the country, with a glorious heritage. The 2019 Grand Final this Saturday shapes as quite a game. Innovation versus tradition, money versus passion, Sydney versus Melbourne. But whoever wins will have an appropriately rousing song to sing when the final siren's gone. I am joined now on Monocle's House View for reasons which will shortly become apparent by Monocle researcher Nick Monice, who, being from Perth, may first of all have something to say in defence of West Coast Eagles' terrible and stupid song. I don't. I really don't. Well, this Andrew. is controversial. It is. Uh, it, it is t- I think you'd find that most West Coast Eagles fans also think it's terrible. So why does it persist? Because it is objective garbage. It's it's the it's the worst 1980s radio rock drivel. It's even got someone playing a bass with their thumb, which should be a crime punishable by having the errant digit sawn off. Oh no, I 100% agree. And really, I think you would find most people do. Why we persist? I think maybe a stubbornness. 
but we, we, like I was saying earlier when we were chatting about this whilst we were listening to your piece, we are constantly trying to reinvent it. Like we we introduced a chant last year at the start of it to try and sort of jazz it up a little. <laughs> it's, it sounds like a high school sports day. That's what it sounds like now that they've got the chant at the start. I, I don't know. Well, my, my attempt to bait you into controversy there has clearly failed, so we should probably talk about the thing you're actually here to talk about, mm. which it says right here on the running order uh, is Milton Keynes. Um, this is possibly not something that's ever happened on any of our shows before. Nick, why are we talking about Milton Keynes? We are talking about it because I was reporting there for the Festival of Creative Urban Living. Now, I don't know if you know this about Milton Keynes. I don't know anything about Milton Keynes. <laughs> have, you, have you heard? It, it's been made fun of. It's the punchline for... Many, many, jokes. I, I've been there once. I think I went there to see REM uh, at the Milton Keynes Bowl a billion years ago. There's there's cows as well, right? Concrete cows. Concrete They're now cows. in a museum. Um, I believe they were being... The concrete cows run a museum? No, the concrete cows are now housed in a museum, oh, okay. I believe. But, but I mean, that... that that cuts to the core of what Milton Keynes has made fun of for. It's it's the fact that, you know, there wasn't really anything there. There was a joke that they couldn't actually have agricultural farms. They had to install uh, concrete cows to make up the numbers. It was a place that people didn't want to be necessarily. Uh, it, it was started uh, in 1967 as part of the New Towns movement where the British government uh, basically declared a whole heap of new towns around the UK to try and move people out of the cities uh, to ease overcrowding in them. Um, and and Milton Keynes, uh, I guess, became a, a the showpiece new town. I, I note that you are skillfully avoiding the question of why you were there. I was there. Okay, so I, I think we, we need to go to the so because we've got to give you a little bit of urban design background. So it was designed in the Garden City movement, where they had uh, lots of housing with light industry and agriculture all mixed together in a single development. I guess surrounded by trees. Mm. The housing itself is absolutely outstanding. You're surrounded by greenery. There's ample open space at the front and the back of the houses. The issue is, as a visitor, you're not experiencing this. You're simply driving through one of its many wide roads punctuated by roundabouts, and you're not really getting the true Milton Keynes experience. So the city council, in setting up this festival, uh, wanted to try and showcase that. So they're inviting people to come and stay with a resident to try and get an understanding for what it's like to live in Milton Keynes and why it's so good. And is that what you did? Did you go and stay with some Milton Keynesians? I did. I stayed with a lovely 80-year-old woman named Pauline. Uh, she, we, it was a quintessentially English experience. We had fish and chips for dinner, uh, uh, <laughs> full, a full English breakfast in the morning, some mushy peas the night before, a cup of tea. It was it was delightful. So can, can, can intrigued listeners go online and sign up for this? They can. So the, the festival runs from the 26th of September to the 13th of October. And it's not, it's not just the Beds United program, which is where you spend the night in the city. It's all also, uh, a host of other exhibitions and events. They've, they've closed off part of the main street or the Midsummer Boulevard to house uh, an ideas forum for, I guess, visioning the new future for Milton Keynes. Because it was it was meant to be a kind of utopia by having all this built, uh, you know, these buildings surrounded by greenery and, and you know, it was, it was the advent of the age of the car and, and they really embraced that. But now they've got to try and, I guess, envision a new utopia and that's why they want to get people in and, and sharing their ideas and exploring it through this festival. And we can read all about this in an upcoming edition of Monocle? You can. I have a observation at the start of the magazine, and uh, you can read about it there. Okay, with that, Nick, I will leave you to enjoy the West Coast Eagles' final few hours as reigning AFL premiers. You are listening to Monocle's House View.
And finally, on the house view to Germany, specifically to its very easternmost city, Görlitz. It is not a well-known destination, though it probably should be. It survived World War II largely unscathed and remains a modest masterpiece of quaint Middle European architecture. Several film directors have noticed this, including Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson, but not enough others. So Görlitz is offering people a chance to come and live there for a month for nothing. Accommodation and workspace provided, no strings attached. Well, I'm joined now, uh, taking a break from packing his lederhosen, by Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Uh, Marcus, are you, in fact, tempted by this? Well, 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 I, I, I do love Middle European architecture, but at the same time, I'm not getting very vibrant vibes from this German city. I was looking at some figures, what I was able to find, and since the German reunification in, the, in 1990, this city's population has fallen from 90,000 to 56,000, and the over 80s are said to make up 40% off the population by 2030. So um, You can understand why they want some fresh blood in there, I do understand. You? I also learned that just a couple of years ago they were also trying to attract young people there by offering them free beer, among other freebies, for two weeks. <laughs> and, and that didn't, didn't seem to do the trick that either. That didn't work. People no. wouldn't go there for two weeks of free beer. No, that didn't do the trick either. I have to say that that I think Görlitz and Finland should maybe work together. I'm from Finland and there are many small towns over there trying to, you know, stop the decline of population. It's quite hard over there. And what they came up in Finland was that in some places nowadays, in some smaller towns, they offer you a free plot of land for a nominal price of one euro. But what's what's more interesting for some individuals is that you sometimes get a baby bonus if you decided to relocate to a new place and have children over there. So for example, Everyone remember this name, Lestijärvi. That's in in, fin, in the middle of who, nowhere. Who could forget? And you get 10,000 euros for each baby. But presumably you have to there. then raise them there as well. You do, sadly. Point. You do, sadly. I, I thought but I was on the verge of spotting the loophole. Exactly, exactly. Actually, it's been working quite well in Lestijärvi. So back in 2012, when they launched this incentive of baby bonus and 10,000 euro uh, awards for babies... Um, that year, 2012, there was only one baby born and that baby's name was Gerto. After that, <laughs> they started paying this money and the next year, already 14 babies were born. So obviously that works. But I think it's a wider issue in Finland. The new stats were released just a couple of days ago from, from Finland of what's happening with the population. Finland is one of the very worst European countries to go through ageing population crisis. You, you, you know for, for the highlights, we're just going to clip that quote so we have you saying Finland is one of the very worst European <laughs> countries. Well, listen to this. Finnish people just are not, you know, they are not having children anymore. So in just three or four years' time, the situation may get so bad that there are more puppies being born in Finland than babies. <laughs> so something needs to be done. And, and, and it's quite clear that we are not there yet when robots would be looking after, the, after Finland's elderly people. So Finland should start to think about this issue properly as well. Sadly, the right-wing forces of Finland don't think that migration would be a solution to this. So... It, it would, remains to be it, it seen. It would seem the obvious one. And this has been an issue with Görlitz as well, which, like a lot of Eastern Germany, is something of a, a haven of anti-immigrant se sentiment and alternative for Deutschland, the anti-immigrant party. Exactly. That is so true. And I think that's something that needs to be solved eventually. I was After, after reading the news from Finland and from Görlitz, I was thinking that it would actually make 
it would be a good point for them to exchange information. So, you know, Finland has many things they offer for free. You get free education, free healthcare, free childcare and so forth. But otherwise it's really expensive. So maybe Finland should has, start has considering fin- that free beer as well. Has Finland, of all places, also thought of offering free mittens and free sun lamps? Not yet. I hope Finland's listening. Because that that would be my tip. That would be my principal reservation would be the 11 and a half months of darkness and freezing cold every year. Otherwise, it's awesome. I I couldn't possibly agree more. Um, Marcus Hippie, thank you very much for joining us. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Will Higginbotham. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 20 hundred, Marcus will be back with a brand new edition of The Menu. Monocle's House View returns at the same time on Monday. That's 1800 London time, which is of course 1300 in Toronto, and the rest of you can figure out the time differences yourselves. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>